Turn, please, to the Gospel according to John chapter 11. We are in a series called The Invisible Made Visible. I'll read our text this morning and then I'll dismiss the kids. We're in John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Uh, We're going through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There's Bibles in the back if you do not have one. If you do not own one, please take it with you. It's right by the sound booth. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth gospel account, one gospel, and his name is Jesus. So John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said... What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of of them said, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They went looking for or seeking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they may arrest him. That would be Jesus. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word uh, this morning. So if you have children, you're dismissed. Kids are dismissed. Probably uh, stuff going out there. Um, and we're in John chapter 11. We're, we're calling this series The Invisible Made Visible. The eternal, the A transcended creator God takes on humanity and identifies with us in our humanity. Yet without sin, he he lives among us, dies for us in our place, paying the debt of our sin, conquering death, which is the penalty of sin. And one of the things that we're going to see here this morning as we look at John together is that truth being completely seen in this passage before us. So you're in John chapter 11. Let me just bring you up to speed. Uh, Jesus is near Bethany. He was in the region that was northeast of Jerusalem in chapter 10, just northeast of the Jordan River. And while he was there, he got a message. It was a messenger that was sent to Jesus by Mary and Martha and Lazarus that Lazarus was ill. Jesus, again, was northeast of the Jordan River, probably three or four days walking journey from there. And we see in verse 5 of chapter 11, it says that Jesus loved them. John wants, to be, wants us to be clear that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the ones who sent this message telling Jesus that the one whom you love is ill, verse 5. And verse 6 gives us a very important clue on what Jesus was doing. It says in verse 6 that because Jesus loved them, so, in verse 6, therefore, Jesus loved them, he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer 
in that place where he was. Jesus hears Lazarus is ill. Jesus, because he loves Lazarus, says, I'm going to stay two days longer. And what we've pointed out is that love motivated Jesus to stay where he was, not respond right away to their request to come immediately. And Jesus says that love motivated to stay put. And in verse 4, if you just go back up another verse, we get the reason why Jesus waited. Look what it says in verse 4 of chapter 11. It says, this illness, the fact that Lazarus is ill, the one whom I love, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay? It's so that God can, be get, God can get glory and that the glory can be seen through the Son. So what Jesus is saying is, I love you, Mary. I love you, Martha. I love you, Lazarus. I, I really do. But in order for me to show you my love, it'll be done through my purposes. And the purposes is that I would get glory, that you will see the magnificent, incalculable worth of God. And we've said this earlier in the series that what they needed at that time and what we need to see and to, 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 to be the, the, the ultimate thing that we need is to experience the love of God. And here we see that the love is being manifested through the glory in which Jesus will manifest himself. That we experience God's love because in his glory, as God is seen as in, incalculable of worth, Jesus will manifest himself to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what they need more than anything is the manifestation of God's glory. John chapter 14, Jesus will say, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and make myself known or manifest myself to him. Now, we know that Jesus could have got the message on the east side, of, east side of the river, days journeys away, and spoke healing. He did it in chapter 4. He could have said, Lazarus, be healed from miles away, and Lazarus would have been healed. But he doesn't do that because he loves them, and he wants to manifest his glory to them. So Lazarus suffers the anguish and pain of death. Mary and Martha are hurting and grieving in the death of their brother, and Jesus shows up three days later, four days later, at least at the exact appointed time. It seemed late for them, but it was God's appointed time. Last week we said that as Jesus showed up to reveal his glory, Jesus revealed his glory to Mary, to Martha, and to the people that had gathered there. And we said that he first came to Martha, if you remember. He, he revealed his love and his glory to Martha through the words of promise Verse 23 through 26, he says to her, well, she says, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. If you had been here, my brother would still be alive. Do you really love us, Jesus? And Jesus says, you know what? Your brother will rise again. That's a promise. Your brother will rise again. And she says, I, I know he will on the last day. She, she knew her Bible. That's what the Old Testament teaches. And he says, no, 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 get, get away from that past. Look at me now. I am, he says, ego am I, eternally existing. I am the resurrection and the life. There's no life. There's no resurrection apart from me. And he speaks these words of promise and he reveals his glory. Next, he reveals his glory to Mary, if you remember, verses 33 through 35, with heart-wrenching, deep inward emotion. He's indignant and agitated over sin and death as he, as he groans, as he approaches the, the, the tomb, and then he weeps in sympathy with Mar Mary. 
And then Jesus looks at the unbelief and the cynical words. Look down at verse 37 of chapter 11. The cynical words of those who said, could he not? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Answer is yes, but he wants to love them. And we see Jesus being indignant and agitated again. And we said last week is because the cynical unbelief that people exhibit toward this miracle that's about to take place is what keeps them from experiencing the love of God and the glory of Christ. Family unbelief and cynical uh, unbelief will keep you from seeing the glory of God. And Jesus here is, is um, showing, substantiating his unique claim as the eternal son of God. In fact, he validates with his resurrection. Look at verse 43. Jesus says to Lazarus, come out. And, and, and Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, comes out of the grave. This, this miraculous, miraculous, omnipotent power. And out comes Lazarus. Jesus had said in chapter 5 that if you, he said this, he says, for just as the father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. This miracle, the seventh sign, seventh sign is pointing toward and continues to validate and reveal Jesus' glory, his claim of being deity, of the same nature, prerogatives, and privileges of God himself. Jesus displays his power, his deity over life and death, his intrinsic splendor, that's what glory means, weightiness, and his worth, is, and, and, and they see this miracle, and some look at verse 46, some actually come to faith in him, 45 and 46. Some see the miracle, I mean, the guy's dead, four days. And out comes, out of the tomb, and he's like, unbind him and let him go. And out comes Lazarus. And some people see that miracle, and it points to the person who's doing the miracle. That's the point of the miracle, to point to Jesus. And they believe, and some disbelieve. And that's where we pick up our story. And if you want to follow with us, here's a simple outline. We're going to see first the reaction. We're going to look at the reaction to the sign. Some believe, some disbelieve, and then we'll look at verses 45 through 48 on what took place because of the sign. And then the response of the Sanhedrin. We're going to look at how they responded to this miracle. And then finally, we'll end up in the middle of the text, verses um, 49 through 52, the revelation through the high priest. is going to show us something that's very, very, very important to our faith. So that's where we're at. The reaction to the sign, the response of the Sanhedrin, the revelation through the high priest. Look at the reaction, verse 45. Many of the Jews... Therefore, who had come with Mary, they saw the miracle, they were at the tomb, had seen what he did. Lazarus came out and believed in him. Very important preposition, in him. Ice means toward him, onto him. It's John's favorite construction for a genuine trust in Christ. There were those who actually saw Jesus do what he said he was going to do, do it, and then believe in him. Earlier, we've seen in John, in the gospel according to John, many times that people believed in the signs only. They didn't really believe in Jesus. Jesus said there was spurious faith. He wasn't going to put his faith in that. These people have genuine faith. They believe in Jesus. Some of them, though, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some people become saved. 
love Jesus, believe in Jesus. Some become informants, snitches, and run to the Pharisees. You see the contrast. They didn't run to the Pharisees to declare how great this guy is. They ran to the Pharisees to say, this is what this man is doing. We need to do something. And the contrast is clear. Uh, Obviously, I mean, just making an observation, it doesn't matter what happens. I mean, the guy's dead for four days. He comes walking out of two. They must have thought it was a trick or something. He's alive. And, and this miraculous sign divides those who believe in him and those who think it's just a trick, it's not a big deal. Some worship, some believe, and some don't want to hear it. And you see the division right there. Jesus said, whoever's with me, whoever's not with me is against me. Some decide to worship, some decide to follow. Now, we should not be surprised at that. Not only have we seen it many times in the gospel, according to John, that there's this division that takes place, but Jesus himself spoke to us in Luke chapter 12. He said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, emphatic. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. This is Luke 12, 51. There will be a division, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There's a sense in which the gospel brings division. And there is a sense in which God does send Jesus to be the prince of peace. We see it in when Jesus' birth. Peace with God, even peace with other people. But the gospel does, and there's a real awareness that division does take place. No one likes division. No one likes to be hated and no one likes to be separated. No one likes to have that dividing reality that we go through. We don't love it, but it's an experience that we have at times as gospel people. Maybe some of you are experiencing it now in your workplace, in your home, in your school, in your neighborhood. Maybe you're, maybe, maybe you're something that you have been through and going through. Now, we're not talking about being offensive toward others. I want to make that really clear. I made it clear in the first service. We're not talking about this self-righteous, foolish, arrogant attitude that nobody wants to be around you. That's not the vision for the gospel. That's the vision because you're being an idiot, okay? That's a big difference between the two. But sometimes we've got to realize that there is division because of the gospel. Let the gospel be offensive, not you, not me. Sometimes people just don't want to hear about Jesus. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together. That's big. What are we to do? This man performs many signs. You need to understand that this council that Jesus, that John is talking about, is what's known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is like this power ruling body that come together, like the Supreme Court, the Congress, the President. Everybody comes together. It's this highest judicial body in all the land other than, of course, Rome. And they would come together and they would be the ruling body of, that, of, of Jerusalem and of the Jewish people. It was made up, which is very interesting, it was made up of Sadducees uh, who were priests and some rabbinic, very popular or, or uh, um, distinguished rabbis called the Pharisees. Now the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. So you have these two warring bodies about the resurrection, which this is really all over about. I mean, it's about John, uh, excuse me, Lazarus coming back to life. And you have this council together. You have this, the Sanhedrin, this high-ranking body of Sadducees and Pharisees. There's 70 of them. And there was, then there was the high priest, which we'll see in a minute. 
71, make 71. The high priest was the one who presided over this ruling body of Jerusalem. And the question before them was, what are we to do? It was rhetorical. It, was, it wasn't really, it was like, what are we going to do with this guy? And the answer is, nothing we're doing is stopping him. This miracle worker is performing many signs. It's, the verb is continuing, like there's nothing we can do. We're trying to stop this guy, but he refuses, and now look what he has done. And what's interesting is the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't really like each other. <laughs> but when it comes to killing Jesus, they're like, let's get along. Because we have one thing in common. And sometimes that's the way it is with us, too. We have people that may not get along, but when it comes to, you know, beating up Jesus, beating up your witness of Jesus, boy, all of a sudden they get along just fine. Herod and Pilate, same thing. You're like, they didn't get along either, but you know what? Let's kill Jesus. Let's get along. Verse 48. If we let him go, look at that. Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, if we let this miracle worker keep doing his signs and wonders and miracles, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now we get to the heart of the matter. All right, we get to the heart of the matter. They were fearful of losing their power, their prestige, their position over everyone. You see, Rome, when Rome would conquer a land, now this didn't happen a lot, but Rome, this was something the Romans did. You look at other places and other scriptures that talk about uh, different powers taking over and conquering lands. Most of the time, they would go in and conquer a land, and then they would institute their religious beliefs, whatever the power was that took over. But not Rome. Rome would come in, and they would take over land, and they would allow the people in that land that they just conquered and ruled to keep their religious identity. They just figured, you know what, we own you now, we bought this place, this is ours, we'll let you continue your religious beliefs. Figured it would be a lot easier and much more of, a, of uh, easier to rule over people who are religiously content. So that when Rome takes over the city of Jerusalem, they allow the priests and the, and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and their governing body to continue in their authority. And now they're like, listen, you're going to lose your paycheck, you're going to lose your pension, we're going to lose everything that we are so comfortable in doing. The Rome lets us do this, and now this guy's coming along, and you know what? we got a lot of invested here. They're afraid of losing it all. They're afraid of losing the check, the job security. If people believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if people believe that Jesus is the king, then Rome would intervene, and we would lose our power. We're getting kicked out, and we'll be unemployed. <laughs> Fear is a serious, strong, motivative factor, is it not? You, you got to know whether it's positive fear or negative fear. There's a difference. Both of them have one thing in common. Negative fear and positive have one thing in common. There's a controlling factor. There's a captivating force that's going on when there is fear. Negatively, if you, have a, if you have fear of someone, if you're afraid of someone, they have hurt you and they have harmed you, and you're in their presence, you are captivated, you are, you are controlled, you're watching that person. You distrust them, rightfully so, you distrust them. Positively, when you step into the presence of someone that you have reverence for and respect and that reverent fear, the whole different perspective, right? You're not looking for that person to harm you, you're looking at you don't harm yourself and look like an idiot in front of them. You're trying to do all the right things. Some people, I mentioned this in the first service too, I, have, I don't like spiders. I think they're cool, like far away. 
And when I find them in my bedroom, it really freaks me out because I'm at sleep. I don't know. Are they on me, not on me? Are they dropping down? It's just, there's like, you're watching. But then there's that fear, that reverent awe. When my wife and I went and opened the car door, I'll never forget it, the Grand Canyon. And I am staying far from the edge, man. <laughs> like, I'm like, I could see right from here, you know, and everybody wants to run up right to the edge. And there's that, there's that positive, there's that healthy, like, I'm not getting close. There's a beauty, there's that splendor, there's that respect. There's negative and positive, both have a controlling factor. These men were exhibiting negative fear. You see, their fears, the thing that captivated their hearts, that dominated their hearts, was a fear of losing their own power, their own position, their own authority. It was self-absorbed fear. In positive fear, in healthy, God-centered fear, your mind is captivated, but when it's the God of our redemption, when it's the God who loves us, it doesn't terrorize us, it frees us. The fear of the Lord is being dominated, captivated under control of the God who loves us. And that positive relational, uh, relational fear of the Lord is a life centered on God. And it produces awe. It produces a, a, a wonder, a majesty and greatness. But it doesn't terrorize us. He loves us. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Centered, captivated, uh, completely dominated by the God who loves us. If it had been the other way around, these guys were afraid of men. If it had been the other way around, they would have been more afraid of what God said than they cared about what Rome might say. They would care more about what God is saying about them and what God is trying to show them through this miraculous work of Jesus than they are whether they will lose their power and position in Rome, in, excuse me, in Jerusalem. Now, it's not to say that we should not care what other people think, but I think what this is telling us, and we see this in the fear that they have, is that when the final analysis is done, when, when, when the final saying or judgment is done, it's not what other people say, it's what God says. The God who loves and redeems us and who has the power over life and death. These religious folks had a decision to make. Between their prosperity and their prominence, the political power, they maintain this order, this religious order in their life, or they could choose Jesus, fear of God. And guess what? They chose prosperity, prominence, political power. Again, before we judge, let's relate. As I think of this, I, I, I thought of issues of pride in my own life. Issues of, of releasing control, issues of, of superiority or inferiority, depends where you're at, is really an issue of pride. And people of faith, particularly uh, us who, who, who understand the fear of the Lord, we have to be careful that we get so committed to our ways, our ideas, our political views, our power, our prominence, that we are unwilling to humble to Christ. And recognize that we are sinners in the hands of a God who, who does not take sin lightly. And that we are loved. And, and Jesus had to die for us as we will see in a minute. Jesus is much less committed to our personal preferences than he is for his own glory. Let me tell you. And everyone who's offended, everyone who's offended will be those who are seeking their own glory. The Romans are offended. The Jews will be offended. The high priests will be offended. Everyone's offended when Jesus is, is pointing away from ourselves and pointing to his greatness. 
We're so used to being glorified and elevated that we see him taking center stage and sometimes it can be a personal front to us. We get so wrapped up in what we're doing. We're so centered on what we want that we need to be humbled. And I see that here in this text. They drew a line in the sand. They drew a line in the sand. What are we going to do? This guy's doing a lot of miracles. They're doing a lot of miracles. What are we going to do with this guy? You know what? If we, if we continue like this, Things are going to happen, and people are going to come in, and people are going to destroy us. People are going to take our pride, take, excuse me, our power and our position away. That's the reaction. Look at the response of the Sanhedrin. Drop down to verse 53. So from that day on, the gathering of the council, they made plans to what? Put him to death. Planning, plotting, and resolving to kill Jesus. We want him dead. Dr. Carson says this, Jesus is not to be arrested in order to be tried. He is to be tried because he's already been found guilty, end quote. Find him, kill him. Verse 54, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Town's probably maybe 10, 12 miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus is near Bethany, about two miles away. He, he, he sees what's going on, and I will tell you, no court, no power, no authority. I don't care how high up the judicial ladder is, Jesus will not be forced to go to the cross until the appointed time of the Father. We see that over and over again. And the place may be close enough for Jesus to come back in that final culmination of that final Passover in which he will give his life, but it will be... Not on their timetable. No matter how high the judicial court is, it'll be on the Father and the Son's timetable. That hour will be determined by them. Look at verse 55. And now we see John introducing to us the final Passover. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up to the country, to Jerusalem, before the Passover, right before the Passover, to purify themselves. If you, were, if you had been defiled before the Passover, maybe someone had passed away in your home, you dealt with a dead body in other ways, you went early to purify yourself. It says, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all, the Passover feast? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees, Sanhedrin, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, tell the council, so that we might arrest him. We want him dead. Now we have to arrest him in order to kill him. I want you to know, family, we're going to take two side notes as we move forward in this gospel account because it's important, more of a historical note. You need to know that the Passover season that was upon them at that time was a celebration of the Jewish people in an event that really identified them as a people, as a nation. The Passover narrative you can find in your Bibles, you can look at it when you get home, and is in Exodus 11 through 13. But the whole story of the Exodus, this departure, that's what Exodus means, departure, is God delivering his people from bondage in Egypt to Cana. He delivers Israel after 400 years. You know the story. God raises up Moses... Right, He delivers them, he's crossing the Red Sea, you know the story, he kills Pharaoh's army, and that whole beautiful story of God's redemption work as he brings the people of Israel to himself in the wilderness, then into the promised land. 
During that time, as you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, there was uh, uh, plagues that were sent upon Egypt. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn. Okay? God told the people, listen, I'm going to pass through. I'm coming to the land of Egypt. And when I do, I'm striking down all the firstborn man and beast because God was sending judgment. God was sending judgment upon the sinful, rebellious, hard-hearted people. It was well established in the Old Testament. You can read it in many places. That the firstborn son belonged to the Lord. Over and over you read about it. The firstborn son belongs to me unless he is ransomed. Because in that day and in that culture, in antiquity, in the Old Testament, everyone understood that a debt was owed to an eternal justice, the debt of sin. And the firstborn son was the one who was the prodigy that moved that family over to the next generation. And the firstborn son was belonged to the Lord unless he was ransomed. I'll give you one verse. There's many, but I only want to give you one. Numbers 18. God says, Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, man or beast, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. He's talking to the priest. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man shall be redeemed. And their redemption price, buying back, paying the debt, at a month old you shall redeem them, and it's fixed at five shekels of silver. In other words, there was a price to be paid for the firstborn because it belonged to the Lord. So now listen. In Exodus chapter 11, when God spoke and said, I'm coming down, justice is coming down on the earth. Take a spotless lamb at twilight. Take some of its blood, put it on the doorsteps and on the length of the house, and there where I see that and I pass over my judgment will pass over because the dead lamb has been slaughtered and and the blood has been spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And Israel listened and obeyed the word of God through Moses and they took the blood, put it over the lentil of the house, over the door frames of the house and what happened? God came down, justice came down on the earth and Every single firstborn son was dead unless the lamb was sacrificed. In every single home, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. Because when God, justice comes down, no one's safe. Not Jew, not Gentile, no one. God's justice comes down on everyone because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The only way the Israelites were spared is through the substitute sacrifice of a lamb. That's the Passover. It was either a dead son or a dead lamb. Those who took shelter under the redeeming substitutionary blood of the lamb was saved. And it was that Passover that was given to Israel as institution, as a feast, to continue on as they moved on in their lives. John tells us the Passover was at hand. Do you see that? Do you see the contrast of the, of the celebration of this redemptive, this sacrifice, and the arrest of the lamb who was, John tells us, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John is full of irony. The Passover feast was at hand. 
It says in verse 55 that the people had gone up to the feast of the Passover a little early to cleansing themselves, but the leaders, one of the commentaries I wrote that I read, said this, had indelibly stained themselves as they ruthlessly plotted the death of the blameless Son of God. John is trying to contrast for us this Passover feast that was going on and the one who would be sacrificed. Verse 57, look how much this, this has permeated the whole feast. The fear that they had, the, 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 the angst of wanting him dead. Look at verse 57. The chief priests and the Pharisees, that's the Sanhedrin, had given them orders, if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they may arrest him. <laughs> Lazarus coming out of the grave wasn't enough. Lazarus coming out of the grave wasn't enough. You have this Passover feast going on and you see the religious leaders missing the whole point of the Passover feast pointing to who? Jesus. Now, before we leave this point, let me just say something about ceremonies, about rituals, about the way we do things here, even as believers. Because sometimes we can gather together and do our customs and do our things and like the way we do things and miss the whole point. The whole point is Jesus. He's the point. Right? I mean, these people are gathering around. They're very religious in what they do. They're, very, they're doing what the Bible calls them to do in this feast of the Passover. But they're missing the person and work of Jesus. They're missing his, who he is and what he has done. I heard someone say tradition is the living faith of the dead and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Doing things, even things that are scriptural, for the sake of just doing them and missing the point could be disastrous for believers. Even the celebration of the Passover feast. So how do you know, we hold on to our methods here. You've, you've heard me say this before, there's principles and methods, right? Principles closed hand, methods open hand. We hold on to the truth of scripture and the things that are orthodoxy and yet we're open the way we do things and we like the way we do things, okay? But we hold on to it with an open hand. Well, how do you know the difference when it gets like this? When the way I'm doing is the only way that, that needs to be done and the only right way of being it done. Here's one way. If the method we choose and the rituals we perform and the personal preferences that we enjoy gives us a sense of, of superiority, gives us a sense that this is the only way to do it, this is the right way to do this, and there's this underlying belief that God loves us more and accepts us more and is pleased with us more here, because this is how we do the things we do, that's probably dead traditionalism. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel is the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on our behalf. The gospel is that he looks at me and sees me and I look at him in the cross and I see my sin, my brokenness, my deserving of hell and then I see his love and forgiveness and kindness at the cross. And when I see that, it brings me to the place of worshiping him and everything we do and all that we say, whether it's something that's been done for hundreds of years or just started yesterday, is for the purpose of worship. Understanding his love and grace and mercy and living on mission, telling others about Christ, it's the worship of Jesus. And they missed the point. And I'm, I, I just look at that, I'm like, year after year after year after year. And then when Jesus shows up, they're like, who? That's scary. Got to keep it centered on the gospel. You got to keep it centered on Jesus. I mean, he raised somebody from the dead in four days he's been dead. As is King James, right? He stinketh. 
He comes out of the grave. They missed it. That is a word of warning, I tell you, to me anyway. So the reaction to the miracle sign was self-preservation and pride. The response of the religious leaders was to put him to death. Anyone who opposes their self-preservation. And now look at the revelation. It's not just the feast that John is pointing to. Look at the revelation of the high priest. Verse 49. This is so beautiful. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year... Not just that year, he was there for a long time, talking about the year that this went on. One of the high priests, Caiaphas, said, you know nothing at all. That was kind of a, kind of a shot in, 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 in the, the idiom of that day. You don't even know what you're talking about. That's what it says. Josephus, Jewish historian, said the Sadducees, the way they talked to their peers was rude. And you see the kind of a rude sense, you don't even know what you're talking about. You know, what are you going to do with this guy? You guys don't even know what you're talking about. You see this high priest, this ruler, this overseer of the Sanhedrin stepping in and saying, y'all don't know what you're talking about. You're a bunch of idiots. And now I want you to mark this. And we're going to take a little bit of break because I want you to see this. This is, this is irony at its best. Who's saying this? The high priest. Do you know who the high priest is? Do you know the function of the high priest? Well, if you don't, I'll tell you, the priests in that day were mediators. They were, had the privilege of mediating for God's people. People would come to the temple, they would come with their sacrifices, and they would, the priest would inter, intervene, he would be the mediator, he would take the sacrifices, and he would go before God and he would do the sacrifices on your behalf. He was the mediator. That's what priests' job were, generally. The high priest, though, that's a different story. He was the one, now listen to this, the high priest was the one person once a year, on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, we just celebrated on Tuesday, once a year, that he would go into the most holy of holies. He would go into the center of the temple, where no one went, where the Ark of the Covenant was. There was a veil that was placed in front of the Holy of Holies, about six inches thick. The same veil that was ripped in two pieces when Jesus died, access into the Holy of Holies. And in that place, once a year, the Shekinah glory, the Panim, the face of God, would shine and, and be there as they gave atonement for the sins of the people. The high priest was the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies. The high priest was the guy once a year on Yom Kippur who took two goats. One goat he would lay his hand on and confess the, to the sins of the people, of the nation. And then he was sent, it's called a scapegoat, into the wilderness. Because that's what forgiveness means, to be sent away. Then the other goat, he would take the goat and he would sacrifice the goat. Take the blood, bring it into the most holy place. Where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the law was. Where two angels stood, representing the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. And he would put the blood of this animal on the, what's called the mercy seat. It was the place of atonement. And when God would look down at, at the law and we have violated it and broken it and the people were sinners, he would look at the blood that was interposed between a righteous God and a sinful people and he would have mercy on them because of the atonement. God's anger, God's just anger, his wrath was appeased and averted. His justice was satisfied by a substitute. On the basis of that atonement, God would freely deal graciously with the people of Israel and postpone judgment for the following year. That guy said this. The high priest, 
The one who walked into the most holy of holies with the substitutionary lamb who laid the blood, who understood the righteous requirements of God and the averting of God's wrath as the substitute. That's the guy who says in verse 50, do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people? Not that the whole nation should perish? And it wasn't even him speaking. Look at verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. It wasn't him. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas prophesies, used of God to speak for God. He wanted him dead. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead, and God speaks through Caiaphas. Have you ever had, don't answer this out loud, have you ever had someone who can't stand your faith? doesn't want nothing to do with Jesus, a total unbeliever, say something and God speaks to you and even rebukes you through it? I have. We can't just shut our brain off. We can't just stop listening to the Spirit of God. God speaks to us. God's speaking to the people through Caiaphas. Sometimes God speaks and lovingly chastises me. And I need chastisement. Probably more than all of you in this room. But I need it. And God will speak through unbelievers. We can't just shut our brain off and not listen to the Spirit when He speaks. He'll speak through unbelievers. That's just a side note. Here we see Caiaphas prophesying. Peter tells us no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here we see God speaking through the high priest saying that it's better for one man to die than the whole nation to perish. Very important, verse 50, 51, and 52. Three times the preposition for, F-O-R, is used. The word is hyper, H-Y-P-E-R, and it means on behalf of. It means for the sake of. So now listen to what it says. It is better for you that one man should die on behalf of, for the sake of, in the place of the people. So that the whole nation shouldn't perish. Verse 51. He prophesied that Jesus would die for, on behalf of, for the sake of, in the place of the nation. Verse 52. And not for, on behalf of the sake of the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That is not an accident. That is sacrificial language. The high priest is saying, let's kill Jesus so that the Romans won't kill us. Substitute Jesus, let him die for us. And actually, Rome will come in. He thinks he's saving the nation, he doesn't. 70 AD, Titus comes and destroys, the the whole temple is burnt to the ground. Jesus said, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city kills the prophets, stones stones those who are sent to it. How often I'd gathered your children. I have, would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her, broad, her, her brood under her wings. But you're not willing. See your house has left you desolate. Let's save the nation. Let Jesus die. Well, actually, they do offer up Jesus. And the nation is still destroyed. But he says in a selfish way, better one man, no matter how innocent he may be, even though he had done nothing wrong, Know what? Let him die rather than the whole nation perish. Family, do you see the irony? 
you see this beautiful truth. Caiaphas, the high priest, and John, the writer of this gospel, understands Jesus' death to be substitutionary. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. If he dies, the nation lives in his life instead of our life. And there is Caiaphas, hating, wanting, Jesus dead speaks. John Calvin wrote this in his commentary. Caiaphas, therefore, might be said at the time to have two tongues. For he vomited out the wicked and cruel design of putting Christ to death, which he had conceived in his mind, but God turned his tongue to a different purpose, so that he likewise uttered a prediction. With the same voice, Caiaphas blasphemes and also prophesies. That's exactly what's happening here. Let's kill the one man Jesus and survive the Romans. Don't squash us. But now hear me carefully. If you don't get anything this whole time, get this. In the mind and eternal plan and purposes of God, he was saying, I will put to death my son so that I don't have to put you to death. God substitutes Jesus for his enemies. The death of Jesus was not a mistake, a bad turn of events. It's the loving work of a grand plan design played out from all eternity to bring glory to God, to see his infinite value and worth and the good and salvation of all his people. You know, it is played out by sinful man. We see the brokenness and we see the sinfulness of this. But it was God who issued the death warrant. This was not just prophecy of God. It was implemented, it was executed, and it was accomplished by God himself. When Peter the apostle was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, preached his first message, he said this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. Raising Lazarus. Mighty wonders and signs. Raising Lazarus. That God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You know what he did. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him again. You see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility clearly in the death of Jesus Christ. The central truth, the central foundation, if we could sum it up in one word of the Christian faith, it is the word substitute. It is the word substitute. If we could push everything aside, even important things, and get to the central diamond, it's the word substitute. John Stott, great theologian, wrote this. The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which God which belong to God alone, God accepts penalties which belong to man alone, end quote. That's the heart. While we make poor substitutes for God, he proves to be the perfect, spotless substitute for us. And this self-substitution, look at our text as we close, is not only for the nation, which is Israel, but look at verse 52. 
not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's not just for the nation of Israel. It's the gathering of those who are scattered. Well, who are they? He tells us in chapter 10. We just passed it a couple of weeks ago. Just as the Father knows me, I lay down, and I know him, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I will bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be what? One flock, one shepherd. It's the nation of Israel and the Gentiles. It's about the Gentile mission. It is about God gathering all his people to himself. It's called the church. And just as the Sanhedrin gathered together to plot this death against Jesus, the sovereign God gathers through the death of Jesus and his resurrection from the grave, the people of God from every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Listen, Christ died not simply to make salvation possible, but to make it certain. I'll say that again. Christ died not simply to make salvation possible, but to make it certain he will gather his children. He did lay down his life for his sheep. There will be one flock. See that? John Piper sums up this truth of the, the sufficiency of Christ, his work on the cross, the forgiveness for whoever so loves him and believes in him will be saved, and the efficacious nature of those who have been redeemed by the blood. And he writes this. Christ died not only to offer the world salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He says, yes and amen and hallelujah for the true and universal offer of salvation to all who believe. But he did more, Piper writes. He also died to overcome the rebellion of the elect children of God and gather them omnipotently to himself. It's not just a free offer. It is a fact of assurance of what Jesus did for us. Both Jew and Gentile. Holy nation, First Peter calls it. And in Revelation 5, we sing this song. Worthy are you, O Lord, talking about Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language, and every people, and every nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Praise be to God. And now we could see what the sacrifices in the temple were all about. This scapegoat was all about. These goats who were sacrificed on the day of atonement. The substitutionary Passover lamb is pointing to Jesus, who is our substitute, who dies in our place. There's a man by the name of Dr. Donald Gray Bornhouse, a famous preacher. He was a pastor of, the, he was a late pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And he tells his story. He tells the story of a farmer out in the Philadelphia fields that one day he saw his wheat fields on fire. And it was blowing and the wind was carrying and the fires were raging and he wanted to save the, the, the barn as it was going near the barn. The fires were raging going near the barn. And in order to save the barn where all the uh, grain was stored, he lit a backfire in hopes that it would impede the progress of the flames. After both fires had subsided, the barns were spared and saved. And the farmer walked out throughout the smoldering ashes of a nearby field and he discovered as he was walking through the ashes a dead body of one of his hens. It was charred. It had caught up in the blaze and it was black and charred. And he went over and he saw its dead body and he moved it with his foot. And underneath this charred 
charred body of this hen, four little baby chicks ran off. Her sacrifice saved her young ones. Such is the work of Christ on the cross. Where the love of God dealt with the justice of God, where God's mercy matched God's wrath, our Lord's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, drinking of the cup, bearing our wrath, our penalty for sin on Himself, where we belong for our stead, in our place. That's what Christianity is all about. Substitute. Hebrews chapter 2, as we move to communion. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood in humanity, we are part of humanity, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, the invisible made visible, that's our series, that through death, through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, the power of sin and death in our lives. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, one flock, the children of God. Therefore, he had to make like his brothers, he was made to like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin, so that he might become a merciful, listen, and faithful what? High priest in the service of God to make atonement, propitiation for the sins of the people. That is our God. Do you know Jesus that way? Do you know him as your substitute? Does the fact that you need a substitute humble you? Recognizing when you look at the cross and you see how wicked and broken we really are, and we look at the cross and see how loved and valued we are that Jesus would die for us and be our substitute, does that humble you this morning? Do you recognize your need this morning? Maybe you don't. Maybe the Spirit of God is calling you now even to recognize your sinfulness and your brokenness and your need of a substitute. Do you rejoice in the rescue of Christ? You can't do it on your own. It is only through his substitutionary death. Our communion table is symbolic of that death. The bread represents his body that was broken for us. That charred body that was on the cross on that tree who died in our place. The cup represents the blood that was poured out, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Leviticus 17 tells us that God gave us the blood as ways of atonement by its life and its death. We have forgiveness of sins. And Jesus becomes the Lamb of God and dies in our place. And that cup represents the blood that was shed. The way we do communion here is the band will play and we will quietly confess our sins, repent of sins, mean turn from sin, and then we will celebrate the substitutionary death of Christ because it doesn't end with confession and repentance, it ends with celebration because he died in your place for your sins and rose and conquered sin, death, and hell. If you've never, ever experienced that forgiveness, I ask you, Will you trust Christ this morning? Will you believe on him this morning? Will you recognize him as the Lord, our God, who died in your place? If you do, then come and take communion. If you don't, we ask that you would just sing and pray. We'd love to talk to you some more. It's for the family of God, and Christ is calling us to confess and to repent and to recognize his substitutionary work for us and humble us as we take together, Lord. Father, thank you so much. Father, for your work for us. You did not leave us in the mess we were in. You did not leave us broken and, and fearful and running away. Lord, you pursued us and sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as an atoning substitutionary sacrifice in our place. What we deserve, he got. 
He lived a perfect life, one we could never live and died a death we should have died for your glory and our eternal salvation. The great high priest who entered into the eternal glory, not with blood of bulls and calves, but by his own blood made redemption, salvation possible for those who call upon you. Lord, we call upon you tonight. Bless our time, Lord. Bless our worship that we may see Jesus, love him, treasure him, worship him. Help us, Lord, to confess and repent and truly celebrate Jesus, our substitute.